The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Lifted up, and a train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Lord, you are holy. None like you. You gave us a song to sing of it sweetly. You give us a text here in Isaiah to, to warn us. As we consider a passage in Samuel, Lord, a, a different place where there is warning and encouragement and sweetness all wrapped up together, would you speak? Through these passages, your spirit in our hearts today, through song, speak, please, Lord, Holy One. Press on us and press into us here in this room today some of the gravity of, of the depth of the wonder of this truth that you are holy. I say some because we will spend eternity exploring it and my words are feeble, but I pray you would use what we have before us today and the time we have before us today to press into us some of your holiness. And use that then, Lord, beyond information, use it to be information that, that renews our minds and therefore transforms us in living. Changes what we think, what we feel, what we want, what we're after, and therefore how we run. God, you, you have to do that. That's a work of you by your Spirit. So please do that today. Please cause what I say to affect me. Cause what I say to affect those of us here right now and later this week and next month. Would you please take these words and these passages and these songs and this time and make a difference with it. Make us a people that are different, Lord, that are holy ourselves. You made us to be. You've called us to be. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A people belonging to you that we would declare your praises 
So, Lord, would you please build that people a little bit more this morning? Clear away now any barriers that exist in our minds and hearts, in the room. Clear them away that we would hear. You speak, Lord. Help us to hear. Make us a church pleasing to you and honor Christ. It's our hope and our prayer this morning. To you, our holy God. Amen. So I read from Isaiah, we are turning our attention to 1 Samuel chapter 6, where in that chapter we find the ark of God back among the Israelites. The ark, you recall, had been lost to Israel when, foolishly, they decided to take it out of the sanctuary of God and bring it to the battlefield, assuming that because this ark is the the earthly representation of the throne of God, that he would therefore be present in power to do whatever they wanted him to do, and they wanted him to fight their battle for him, so they brought him out, and he refused to be used, and therefore did not fight for them, and they lost the battle and lost the ark. And the Philistines took it, as we saw at the beginning of chapter 5, carried it back to their lands and put it as a trophy of war in the temple of their god Dagon, They put it in his temple to show that Dagon has triumphed over Yahweh, but of course that night and the next night twice, tables were turned and the Lord showed that he is the one who reigns supreme everywhere. He is not just a local deity in Israel, not just God over a small people, but he is God over all of the earth, over everyone, including this God, Dagon, made him bow down to him twice. And from then, through the rest of the chapter we saw, he commenced marching throughout the land of the Philistines, conquering them city by city as he afflicted them with with terror and with tumors, showing continually in each city that he reigns, awakening them to some fact that he is God. We saw this last week that he does it in a way that makes completely clear and obvious that it is the Lord who's doing it. There is no uncertainty. Where did this come from? He makes really clear that he's the one doing it. He is afflicting. And this is the challenging point to us last week, that God may even use affliction to awaken us to spiritual truth. He awakens them. They know it's him, and they want to get rid of him. They don't want anything to do with him. They, they have assumed they've locked it in. We worship Dagon. This God has become a problem for us. Let us dismiss him and send him away. And they do that, ultimately by putting him on a cart, sending him back to Israel, giving them some some gold statues, tumors that represent the disease that afflicted them. They, They send that all back to Israel, and it goes away, and they are left to live just comfortably like they want to. That was a challenge to us. When God gets our attention, even through affliction, do not send him away. Respond. That was God, the Lord among the Philistines, and as we'll see today, unfortunately, it's pretty similar when he comes home to Israel. We find today Israelites acting like Philistines. He comes back, he comes among them, shows himself clearly, alarmingly to be the holy Lord in their midst, and they scramble to get rid of him. 
His covenant people scramble to get rid of him rather than get right with him. Something there for us to consider this morning. When he comes among us, don't get rid of him. Instead, consider how and consider what God has done to help us get right with him and to enjoy him forever. That's what we're going to look at today as I turn us to the end of 6 and the very first verse of chapter 7. So let me read the passage. It's a short passage, so I just have a couple of things to clarify. And then we'll make a couple of observations. This is from 1 Samuel chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness of to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. 1 Samuel 6. Passage begins with a with a summary paragraph, kind of concluding what we'd seen already, pointing out the various gifts, the guilt offering that the people of the of the Philistines had returned. They knew they had offended this God, so they send them back with a gold offering, one for each of the cities, and it's there as a reminder. And and the big stone that the cart with the ark stopped next to, conveniently, providentially, there a, a stone for sacrificing. That was still there, a reminder of what had happened, how the ark had come back, how they had responded with joy, how he had afflicted the Philistines and the Philistines had acknowledged it in their offering. All there is a reminder. But, verse 19, the joy of the ark coming back and the awareness of how God had afflicted the Philistines, it was all short-lived. And the men of Beth Shemesh, the, the town to which the ark had come back, they did something awful. As the ESV puts it, what I, what I read, they looked upon the ark of the Lord. Perhaps some of your translations say looked into the ark. It, the Hebrew could be either way. It's not, not clear which they did exactly. Either one of them would be a great offense. Either the men looked upon the ark, meaning they closely inspected it. They, they gazed at it and, and gave it the once over. Or they actually took the lid off and looked inside. Either, either one would be a great offense because the ark was either to be hidden away from people inside the sanctuary in the Holy of Holies, never to have people look at it. Or if it was taken out and carried, it was completely covered and never touched. So either way, they have 
come up to this ark, which is representative of the throne of the host of heaven, and have treated it like a common artifact. An interesting oddity, and looked it over, maybe they touched it, maybe they took the lid off, we don't know, but, but they examined it, drew near to it, treated it as a common property of the people, with far too much familiarity. They got personal and casual with the throne of the host of heaven. And so he struck them with a great blow, killing 70 men, which is the most likely way to read the number in verse 19. Now, maybe some of your translations are perhaps a footnote that you might have, say 50,000 and 70. I think the NAS says that. Well, there are a few ways that we could read that, and, and given that logically the population of that whole area was nowhere near 50,000 people, for there to be 50,000 men killed is, is not realistic most likely what we have there is a restatement 70 and then a restatement of that number in a different way 50,000 there are a couple different ways that 50 and thousand could be read a thousand is sometimes used to describe a whole clan it's shorthand for clan or tribe 50 could be uh, a reference to a portion of a clan a portion of a tribe there are a lot of different ways that this is looked at and people talk about how are we to read that? But what's most likely is that we have 70 and then a restatement of the number. But we can't be sure. What we can be sure of is that the Lord struck them and it was a heavy blow for such a small place. 70 people killed. And they mourn over that blow and ask two questions as a result. It's in verse 20 there. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? which they mean to be rhetorical, implying no one is able to stand before this holy God. Second question then, how can we get rid of this? Where can we send it? And so they send messengers, verse 21, to the town of Kiriath-Jerim, announcing the news, good news, the Philistines have returned the ark, now come and get it, we don't want it. Which is ironic. When the ark comes back to Israel, they rejoice, and then they fool around with it. Trouble happens, and rather than not fooling around, they send it on its way. And the place they send it is interesting. Though it says it ends up in the care of, of this man, Benadab, and his son Eleazar. Almost certainly Levitical priests given their names, very common priestly names, and this man is consecrated to care for the ark. It ends up in the care of Jewish people. The town itself is largely Gentile. This is one of the towns you recall from the book of Joshua when, when some towns sent emissaries to Joshua to fool him into thinking that they were from far, far away so that he wouldn't destroy them. This is one of those towns. Joshua made a vow then that he wouldn't destroy them only to later find out, hey, you're right around here. So they exist as a, as a Gentile enclave amongst Israel, largely Gentile. Obviously, there are Jews who live there. But that's the place that the throne of the God of Israel goes, stays there safely for a hundred years until King David comes and gets it. it. Stays among the Gentiles. Fascinating. But that's the text comes back to Israel, more trouble, more affliction, and even Jewish people, covenant people, 
send it on its way. I'm going to make two observations from this passage. Here's the first one. About God and His nature. And as I, as I talk about this, my, my prayer, as I prayed earlier today, my, my hope and my prayer is that for me, for me, I need this, that for you individually, for us as a people, that God would take this, which is familiar to us. If you're a Christian, this, this can't be new. But He would take this and make it new. Here's the first point. The Lord our God, He is holy. The Lord our God, He is holy. Verse 20 asks, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? It's just acknowledging that which they have just seen played out in their midst. He is holy. It's underlined repeatedly throughout all these chapters. Going back a little ways, Israel summoned Him to do their bidding in the battle, and God, God won't have any of that. He, he won't play. And then the Philistines use him as a, as a trophy and then, and then trot him around, kind of boasting of him, and, and he, he won't have any of that. He strikes them dead. And then in Israel, when it comes back in, amongst the people of God, they, they treat it casually. They, they horse around with the ark and whatever exactly they do, and they treat it as, as if it's their property. And does God give them a pass on that, thinking, well, they're my people and they haven't seen the ark ever? And it's been gone for seven months, so this is a great exciting thing for them. Does it give them a pass? No. Dead. Seventy people. It's attention getting. His holiness is unimpeachable uncompromising. He will not tolerate any attempt to pollute him, to bring him down, to make him common, which is the constant refrain of the Scriptures from cover to cover. Sometimes, the word holy is attached to His name, the, the Holy God, the Holy One. Sometimes it's used in a, in a description or a statement about Him. You alone are holy. It is the only characteristic of God that is pronounced with that threefold repetition that gives great emphasis. I read it in Isaiah. It's also found in the book of Revelation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And while on the one hand we must keep in mind that every one, every single one of God's attributes, all of them together are each necessary to accurately describe God. None are able to be excluded. Every one of them is necessary. And yet on the other hand, we must recognize that the Scripture itself elevates this attribute. Holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says love, love, love. Grace, grace, grace. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Holy, holy, holy. The Bible itself gives first place among all the attributes to holiness. And we can see some of why that is when we come to understand what it is. The essence of holiness is otherness, separateness, 
captured very well in that song, none like you. None. So, depict it like this. Here's the, the common pool, holy, separate, other, distinct. That's, that's what is at the heart of the idea of holiness. And seeing that, it's easy to understand why we often associate the word holy with pure or morally upright or, or sinless, perfect, appropriately so. Because what God is, if this is the common, if this is the creature, what God is set apart from most dramatically is sin and impurity and wickedness that dominates this common sphere of humanity. To be set apart from us is to be set apart from wickedness, to be holy. In every way, He displays it. Which is why holy, holy, holy can be set above all the other attributes of God. All that God is, all those other attributes, He is them in a unique and a holy manner. Consider love, for instance. And absolutely, absolutely, God is love. The Bible says so. Thank God it's true. But He is love in a holy, holy, holy way. We creatures, we, we can love. We understand the word, we understand the concept, we want it, we can do it, but we do it in a creaturely way. We do it in small ways, in imperfect ways, in short-term ways. We attach love to wrong objects. We love in wrong degrees, in wrong manners. We love in a compromised way. We pervert love, we distort it. And God's holy love is unlike that. Thank God. It is steadfast, pure, always right. It is a love that covers and cleanses even wicked people. We don't love wicked people. He loves even sinners and loves them glory, loves them to their good. He loves you to your good. His love is wide and long and high and deep. It is not short-term. It is not passing. It does not faint. It is sinless. It is righteous. It is holy, holy, holy love. As is His justice. It is holy justice. It is his wisdom is holy wisdom. His grace is holy grace. His creativity is holy creativity. The Lord our God, He is holy. This is who He is. It is who He still is is may God press this on us may God impress upon us and press into us an abiding comprehension of his holiness of his awesome separation from and distinction from us in our creatureliness and in our fallenness May He press onto us a, some glimpse, some little grasping of His purity. Would that He would do something to us like He did to Israel at Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. They drew up next to the mountain having known something of Him and then saw the mountain quaking and burning and covered in smoke and heard the voice of the Lord and stepped back. 
Would he do something in your life, in your heart, like he did in Isaiah's life and heart? When Isaiah, who knew something of the Lord, was already a godly man. But in a moment saw the Lord high and lifted up. And as the temple then, similar to the mountain, shook, was filled with smoke, he heard, holy, holy, holy. He heard a voice crying out and he stepped back and fell down. He is this consuming and awesome and holy H-O-L-Y, and holy, W-H, separate God. Now, surely there is more to the story. You know there's more to the story. Set that aside for a moment and hold right here because there is a lesson that we must get. Most of the time, we, Americans... Modern people, even American Christians, would never, I mean, it would never occur to us to ask the question, who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? Never cross our minds. Because we think, duh, me, I can. Of course, what's the point? Chewing gum, flip-flops. Me. Not there's anything wrong with chewing gum. There's nothing wrong with flip-flops. There's nothing wrong with Hawaiian shirts. There's nothing wrong with drinking coffee. However, listen, all of that is indicative of us as a people and us as a culture. We are casual. I wore a tie today. I, I might be the only one. I don't always wear a tie. I actually didn't wear this because of this. I just happened to wear a tie. Most of the time, I'm not even wearing a tie. Most of the time, our, our clothing is indicative of something much larger. The problem is not our clothing. The problem is we are a casual people. And that very easily is a mindset that we carry into the rest of life and treat everything casually. And we are commonly prone to treat God casually. He is not your buddy. He is not the man upstairs, the big guy. He is not the proper object of jokes or ridicule, even if we're joking. He is not to be bartered with, presumed upon, treated as one of us. He is other. He is distinct. He is separate from all of our unrighteousness, all of our creatureliness, all of our lowliness. And it is a massive problem for us because in part we don't see it, and even if we do see it, it still presents an ontological problem, a problem of being. We are one, and He is really, really, really the other. 
who can stand. May this be pressed into you. May you see God as awesome. And may it undo you like it did Isaiah. And may it gladden you. I meant to say that. It didn't slip. May it gladden you. Because the fact that God is holy, holy, holy is a really good thing. Can you think of why? There'll be a bunch of reasons why. It is a really, really good thing. It is easy to talk about the fearsomeness of His holiness. And we must, we must hear that and may God grow in you fear of Him. But may He also grow in you thankfulness for His holiness. It is good that we have a God who is holy, who is set apart from and will have nothing to do with the fallenness and the limit, the limitedness of this life, but is so much more and is so completely pure. Think about this. To be separate from sin and impurity and unrighteousness is a good thing, a glorious thing. It is what the perfect creation was like before the fall. It is what God Himself is like. It is what the place where God dwells is like. And it is what those who belong to Him will one day experience forever. Sin is not only wickedness, sin is wretchedness. And it is really good that the omnipotent one is holy, as in completely holy, is completely against all wickedness, all wretchedness. That is good news though it sounds hard to us now because we are awash in it and sense that means he's against me. We sense that. You should sense that. But setting that aside for a moment, do you see how it is good that God hates sin? That God will destroy sin? Who wants him to be mildly tolerant of wickedness and wretchedness? Who wants a place forever that's, you know, a little better than here, but still heavily salted with a bunch of death? No, we want it cleaned completely. And the burning purity and holiness of God will scorch it all. Thank God. But it raises a question that I set aside for a moment. We need to bring it back. Who then can stand? Who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? Casual me says me until I understand something of what I am and what he is. And then I say, maybe not. Uh Uh-oh. I, we have a problem. Who can stand and that brings us to the second point. And we have to move to the second point and not run away from the first point. 
We run away from the first point by denying that he is actually that holy. No, he's not. And the preacher is just way, way over the top and all that. No. I, I, I'm ashamed of my inadequacy. I'm not anywhere near the top. I can't see the top from here. He's holy. Don't deny it. Don't run away from it. Don't try to get rid of him. We must think about how can I be right with him. And the good news is that God has acted to make that so, which is the second point. Here's the second point. There is one who is able to stand before the holy God and also to enable us to stand. There is one who is able to stand before the holy God and to enable us to stand. The question raised in verse 20 is an important one, and though the context indicates that they don't think there's an answer, they think, as I said, it's rhetorical, no one is what they think the answer is. In fact, there is an answer in the text itself and in the broader context. After all, the ark does go to Abinadab and his son Eleazar and is there just fine for a hundred years. Then David comes and gets it. There is an answer. And we see, if we back up just a little bit further, when the ark first arrived, the Levites picked the thing up, took it off the cart, set it down. Nobody struck dead. So, who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? Answer, consecrated priests who treat the ark properly, who treat God properly according to His standards who are properly cleansed, interact with Him appropriately. That's the answer in the larger context as well. Who can stand and minister before the ark ever? Well, same answer. Sanctified priests. God made a whole family of them. Established ways that they are to be cleansed from sin. Now, they can't just treat Him however they want. He's, he's established ways, but, but these priests... Set aside, consecrated, made holy, set aside, cleansed. They can interact with the ark just fine. That's the Bible's answer to question 20. The question in verse 20. Who can stand? Priests. The right priests. That's the answer, but it's not the final answer. It's not the ultimate answer. Witness Eli. Eli stands until he doesn't. The Lord strikes him dead and his sons and his whole family after him. So there's a question raised. Who can stand? There's, there's an answer raised. Priest. But then there's another question. But not every priest and not always and none of them last. Even the best ones can't stand forever they die. And even the best ones can only stand in certain ways on certain days when properly covered by certain sacrifices. It raises the question, it answers, priest, and then it points us beyond any particular priest to look for the priest. The priest. Points us to look for the great high priest, the holy one, the Christ. The one whom the Lord Himself would provide and who can stand on His own merit. 
before the holy, holy God because He Himself is holy, holy, holy God. God in flesh, come from above, sinless and perfect in every way, like us, yet separate from us because He is without sin. This one, crucified for sin, is raised and then raised up to heaven where He stands, better yet, sits. He can be comfortable with God the Holy Father. He stands in heaven forever, accepted and just fine. What's going on in all that? Well, do you, under, do you understand? It is helpful to understand the cross when you read stories like, like these we've been looking at in the Old Testament. You can get a picture of a, of a really kind of a mean-spirited, cranky God if you just read chapter 4, killed 4,000 guys, and then killed 30,000 guys, and then killed particular guys named Eli and Hophni and Phinehas and his daughter-in-law and then his sons and sons and sons after him. And then he kills countless people among the Philistines in city after city after city. And then he kills 70 more people amongst Israel again. I mean, he's just killing everybody. What's the deal? It is meant to create in your, in your eyes this. Or, or maybe, maybe this. The hand of God lifted, ready to strike. If you read Isaiah 5, right before Isaiah 6, you read Isaiah 5, you find the woes of God pronounced on Israel. It says how He struck them, how He struck them, how He struck them. And for all of this, His hand is still upraised. It is meant to create in you a God strikes evil. And meant to press something onto you. I, I've said this to my, to my kids and to others, I think. Meant to press on you some sense of the motion of the hand coming at you. God strikes, and when He strikes, 4,000, 30,000 particular people, loads, 70 people perish. And his hand is still upraised, this holy God, and I violate his holiness. How can I stand? And it's rushing towards me. And into the middle steps Christ and takes the heavy-handed blow of God for you. And then, if, if do you know what spalling is? If you know military history... Spalling. I'm talking tanks. Tank crews can be killed by tank rounds penetrating the armor and exploding inside, or they can be killed by a really heavy blow striking the armor and the metal on the backside going. <clears throat> the metal's not pierced, but the inner layers spall shatter, and you can just imagine a whole bunch of metal bouncing around inside of the tank. 
the good thing is that when the heavy hand of God falls on Christ, there is some holy spalling that strikes you. The wrath of God falls on Christ and the righteousness of Christ hits you. So when Christ steps away, He says, Oh, covered in righteousness. Where did that come from? It came from Christ, not from you. The Holy One has placed onto, the theological word is imputed, pressed into you, covered you over with a righteousness that is not your own and comes only onto you because the blow fell on another. All by the provision of God. He has taken the heavy blow of God that must fall because God is holy and has left on you a righteousness that empowers you to stand that when Christ steps away and you stand before the Father alone and naked, clothed now in Christ. Who can stand? The one clothed in Christ. The one covered with Christ's righteousness. That's who can stand. That's what God has done for you at the cross. If you are a Christian and if you've trusted Him, that's what He has done for you at the cross. He has taken the blow that must fall because He is holy and has given you a righteousness that graciously is yours in Christ. And there's more because when He calls us to be a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. He does not mean that only in a status, in a standing. He means it in a walk also. A nation that walks in holiness. That walks separated. I'll use another Bible word sanctified do you realize i've said this before so maybe you know but the word sanctified and the word holy they have a common root in greek in in english they don't sound the same holy and sanctified sound completely different in greek you can see obviously that's from the same word set aside to be sanctified set aside holy distinct set aside he saves you and sets you aside to be one that He is setting aside. He saves you and makes you holy to become holy. See that? He is very concerned that His holy nation be holy. That His people walk distinct, separated from the mass of humanity in its fallenness. That we walk towards Him. And we must be, I say, clear-eyed and cold water in the face honest about something here. We aren't. Now, I don't mean that in an absolute zero sense. If you are a Christian, you are set aside. And if you're not being set aside, you're not a Christian. I mean, so I don't mean that in, in an absolute sense, but I mean that in a, 
alarmingly, woefully short sense. Every Christian agrees with what I've said so far about Christ giving us His righteousness and giving us a standing of holiness and about Christ wanting to call us to walk in holiness. Every Christian agrees with that. And I hope, I I pray that as you think about it, something stirs in you as you see that He has saved you from falling before Him and has enabled you to stand and that, that you give glory and honor to Him. We all agree. And may worship grow in you from that. But we, the modern American church, we are stunningly unholy. Not even in comparison to God, just in comparison to the previous generations of churches. And in comparison to other churches around the globe, in in different areas, even today. God sits often on many of us. I leave just enough room for the possibility of you being excluded, but I think often on many of us, myself included, God sits very lightly. And the idea of holiness and the idea of pursuit of holiness and the idea of walking in righteousness and fighting to say no to sin is no more than an idea. A good one, but just a thought. I am not talking about no more R-rated movies and no more skirts. That's way too easy. Do you realize that a lot of, uh, a lot of American Christianity in previous generations, and some still today, reduced all of this holiness and separate from the world to, well, no R-rated, I mean, we don't play cards. Um, what else, you know, what else don't we do? There, now we're holy. No, they weren't. I'm not talking about comparing us to that. I'm talking about other Christians of previous generations and other Christians in other cultures who are highly concerned to to look for and mortify, put to death their sin. Like God commands us to in Romans 8, for instance. Put to death the misdeeds of the body by the Spirit, and you will live. Other Christians read that, took it for real, and fought and putting to death sin it is I think best captured by strangulation crucifixion would work too but we're less familiar with that in in, well maybe we are I don't know you strangle someone but if you let go at some point they come back to life it's different than crucifixion kind of committed but if you strangle somebody and you stop before it's dead before the thing is dead that's not talking about people i guess it comes back to life you gotta iron death grip it all the way to death 
To put to death the misdeeds of the body is an all the way till your death. Like that with sin. Mortifying it. And if I let go at age 75, it'll come back. What do you know? All the way to my grave, I'm putting to death the misdeeds of the body. I don't think we live like that. There is very little holy warfare in our lives. I just have to ask, do you recognize that for you and are you tired of it yet? Because if you're not making war on it, if you're not putting it to death, it is rising and reigning. Do you notice that and are you tired of it yet? Sin kills you. Sin kills us. God calls us to holiness, yes, indeed, to honor Him. But God calls us to holiness to bless us, to do us good, to call us away from that which would kill, steal, and destroy us. And it does not happen casually. We live in a world with voices that talk to us, with influences that surround us. We will not accidentally stumble into holiness. It is a war. So I'll just ask you, in general ways, I mean ways that could be more specific certainly, but it's hard to be more specific from this vantage point. If you want to talk more about your own life, I I would love to. The elders would love to. But I ask you generally then, what appetites or goals or ways of the world do you chase and feed just like your neighbor? What things do you fear just like your neighbor? What things do you work to fix just like your neighbor? You switch tacks here. Are you bent on attaining the American dream? Do you have no idea what it means to be free from the love of money? May God speak to you if that's you. Can you imagine a marriage that is not about your own self-fulfillment or falling apart because it's not fulfilling you, but is instead about depicting Christ's love for the church And speaking of the church, when are we going to get free from thinking of church as some combination of a business and an entertainment studio, ever attentive to marketing demands? I I can say that, 
And I'm not only shooting at churches out there. I'm, I'm shooting at myself. I, I, I understand I pastor a church. I'm clear on that. And I understand how much I am tempted to make it an entertainment studio and a business. Ever attentive to the marketing demands of the people who walk in the doors. Which is not to say that the right thing is to not care about people and what they need. Different. Way different. What I'm talking about is responding to and shaping an organization that will appeal to what people want. That is, that is all over the American church. My goodness. A mile deep. whispered too softly there. It's right here. He calls us to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And by ourselves, we cannot be. But mercifully, He has provided a way that we can stand righteous and holy. And He gives us His Spirit to move us to follow His decrees. The blessing of the new covenant, as Jeremiah in Hebrews puts it, He gives us His Spirit to move us to follow His decrees. If it's only in Jeremiah, it's not in Hebrews. Ezekiel, pardon me. The Spirit. Put to death the mysteries of the body by the Spirit. He's not left us as orphans, but He comes to us and gives us the Spirit that we might walk in holiness. Not just setting us apart from movies and clothing, but setting us apart in our minds and hearts that we want and therefore chase after Him and the beauty of holiness. The good news is that Christ forgives and the good news is that Christ stands for you to change you. That is awesome. May we be a church that is like that, that is different, that longs for holiness, that longs for Christ, that submits to His Spirit and cries out to Him to make us different and to make us pleasing. May we be a people like that. Let me pray towards that end. Let's pray. God Almighty, we need You. From the very beginning, we need You or we would perish. And today, we need You or we will wander. We are prone to wander. Lord, we know it. We feel it and we know it. Prone to leave You. And so would You claim us Would You graciously pour out Your Spirit on us and open our eyes that we might behold You holy, holy, holy. Father, as we sit now and for a few minutes think, would You you be about the business of talking to individuals right now? Showing them where they have not fought for holiness. Holiness. 
maybe even showing some that they do not stand righteous before you. Lord, call them to Christ and save them. But for your people here, Lord, would you, would you speak to them now in the next minute or two and awaken them and convict them of sin and show them your beauty that the joy of the Lord may be their strength in the fight against sin, the fight for holiness. Lord, help, we need you. Come, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.